Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. Take your Bibles and open up to Psalms, the book of Psalms, chapter 16. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And if you're using one of those, it should be right around page 535. And once you get to Psalms, I'm going to throw you for a loop. Once you get to Psalm 16, put your finger in there and turn over to Romans chapter 8. I want to read a passage out of Romans 8, and then we're going to come back to Psalm 16 as a, our primary focus. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to say once again, Happy Father's Day, dads. Uh, we're grateful for you, and uh, what a privilege it is to be a dad. Uh, both challenging and joyful at the same time, uh, sometimes in the same moments, as you get to see and witness the growth of your children and the challenges that that is. Um, I love the fact that I'm looking around and I see uh, children who have come today with their fathers and fathers who've come to be with their children at all levels, at all generations. Uh, what a joy that is to see, family. And uh, I pray that today you'll be intentional about investing in that time and the opportunity that is. Uh, because I also recognize there's people here today that wish they could spend today with their fathers. And uh, others who uh, have experienced hardship in the face of their fathers. And so in the midst of this, we ultimately turn our eyes to the good, good father who has given us life in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to fix our eyes on today. And <clears throat> I want to actually begin... By reading out of uh, Romans chapter 8, because uh, we need to set a precedence for where our eyes are fixated today before we step into the psalm. And in Romans chapter 8, this is right in the heart of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, it speaks about a hope. Everyone say hope. It speaks about a hope that we can have that doesn't end here. In verse 18 it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, it's interesting when we stop and we consider this and we think of a biblical definition of what faith is. Now, if you're here today, in some measure, one way or another, you are a person of faith. In in the slightest sense, you're at least someone who is seeking what is this faith that other people proclaim. As we gather on a Sunday with church family, uh, we gather as a people of faith. Everyone say faith. Now, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Hebrews 11 goes on to give all these examples of people who walked and lived in faith. There's two elements here that intrinsically are tied together, and it's faith and hope. Faith and hope. And so at the end of the day, I ask this question to you. What is our hope in life? What is our hope in life? And more specifically, if we really want to approach this from a biblical lens, the question is more specifically, what is our hope in life and in death? What is our eternal hope? But in order to answer that question, we first have to be able to answer the question, what do I hope in most today? What do we hope in most today? And if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to grasp this. And it is that hope in life and death is found in Christ alone. Hope in life and death is found in Christ alone. And so the question we can ask every one of ourselves, the question we can ask the church, we should ask the church is, do we find our hope in Christ alone? Do we? It's easy for us to step back and go, yes, Jesus is the reason that we're here. It's another story for us to live that way. And you may be here and you may actually be someone who's personally experienced what it looks like to have someone say that to you and yet be on the other receiving end of someone who does not practice what they preach. And this is a question that we need to wrestle with as a whole. Do we find our hope in Christ alone? And so I want to read this Psalm 16. And then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to walk through this psalm this morning. And you'll begin to understand why our hope is in Christ alone, both in life and in death. Psalm 16, verse 1, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, as we consider these truths and as we uh, listen to your word and that which David, the psalmist, penned, may you open our eyes to see what have we indeed put our hope in. And more than that, Lord, may it cause us to pause, may it cause us to step back, and may it cause us to recognize that there is one hope in life and death. There is a singular hope that lasts, and that is Jesus. May it be so amongst us, and may it be seen not just in what we say, not just in what we teach, but most importantly, in who we are as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, within this psalm, what we actually uncover is present truth, prophetic truth, and promised truth, all pointing us to one thing, the one who can bring us lasting hope. Now, it's interesting, some of your Bibles may actually say that this is a a mitcom of David. Right at the top, right before verse 1. And there's actually not a lot of explanation as to what mitkam means. And the best they can tell is that it means gold or stone. And there's only six psalms in the entire 150 psalms that are given this label. In fact, most of them are actually between Psalm 56 and 60 that are given this label. And the best that anyone can garner up is what this means is it's some sort of musical term but elevates it in priority and was used more consistently in the regular gathering of God's people. Now, I say all that but want to preface it and say at the end of the day, in our modern day world, we really don't have a complete concept as to what a mitcom is. Nevertheless, it is crucial that we seek to understand what is being written. And the first piece of that is that we see in the midst of this present truth. Present truth. Look at the, 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 the vulnerability here. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. But then there's all of these other statements between here and verse 9. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Verse seven. I have set the Lord always before me. And this should bring us to a really simple question. Do we? Do we do this? Is this could could we read the words of this psalm and say this is true of us? And in fact, when I was reading this a couple of months ago, I, I, I took and marked this and I wrote that question in my Bible because I, there's this deep conviction in me that I read this and I say, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And, and immediately right after verse two, I'm going, is that who we are? 
Do we say this? I have no good apart from you. Unequivocally, I think we'd have to be honest and say no. Right? Because we look around our lives and we say, oh, I'm... someone asks you, hey, what's good about your life? Scaringly enough, I would bet that most of us would not immediately think the Lord. Just as a personal conviction. I, I, you know what? I have, I have a family. I have, I have a wife, my kids. I have friends. I have a church family. Uh, I have a job that supports and takes care of our needs. I have, we could go through this list, right? Uh, maybe it's uh, material possessions. I have a reliable car. or I have, We fill in these blanks and we go, well, what's good about our lives? And yet the psalmist goes, I have no, nothing good apart from you. In comparison to who you are and what you have given us, there is nothing that compares. It's the same reason the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3 and said, I consider it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And the word there, I consider it all as loss. Uh, the actual word there is I consider it all dung. I consider it all manure. Or when I do Bible say with my kids, because it brings out laughter, I say, you consider all other things poop in, com- in, in comparison to knowing Christ. Right? But that's the, that's the gold standard, isn't it? And we become content in our day-to-day lives going, you know what? David, David is a man after God's own heart. And... You know, he had a he had a different relationship with God than what I have. And so, you know, it's really OK. I don't I don't really need to actually feel that there's nothing good in my life apart from God. This is how we end up down these slippery slopes and we end up excusing our own fleshly desires and behaviors, family. When in reality, if we really stop and ponder what is eternal, I have one hope. In life and death. Don't I? I have one hope that lasts. uh, Because every one of you in here at some level or another has experienced loss. Some great, some small. Doesn't matter how young the child is. There is an ongoing experience of loss of something as we grow. And more and more we see the reality that our only hope in life and death is Christ. But if we go a step further, we say often here that we desire to walk in the way Jesus walked, to become more and more like Jesus, to worship God as we become more like him. And we call that sanctification, the process of us moving from where we are to where God wants us to be, ultimately shown to us through the person of Christ. So. When we consider this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Let's stop and consider how Jesus lived. In fact, in John chapter six, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Words of Jesus. Jesus purpose was to do the will of him who sent him there. Jesus himself found no greater joy than to walk in obedience to his father who sent him. If we're called to be like Christ, what does that imply about how we should live? It's not hard to think about. It's hard to do, right? Now, it's interesting in verse (laughs) 9, we have all these statements. And we'll come back to verse 4 because that's a prophetic statement. But all these statements, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. I've set the Lord always before me. Verse 8. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Look at verse 9. Therefore, there's, there's a result of setting ourselves on God as the greatest good we have. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Church family, earthly security begins with eternal security. Earthly security begins with eternal security. That's what the psalmist reveals here. If I have no security in my eternity, then I will consistently be looking to fill that void of security with earthly things. And yet the psalmist says, because the Lord is my portion, I have no good apart from him. Because the Lord is my cup and holds my lot. Because I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Because I have set the Lord always before me. Because of that, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices and my flesh dwells secure. You see the result when our hope is in one. Now, while David writes of present, a present mindset here that brings hope, there's also very important prophetic dynamics in this psalm. And so there's not just present truth that we have to wrestle with and seek to live out. There's prophetic truth here. And that begins in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. We often think of prophecy in the sense of Old Testament spoke prophetically or Revelation spoke prophetically and it's it's come to be in Christ or it's yet to be. Uh, We think of this as this really far outstretching thing. And yet it's quite prophetic to declare if you live this way or do this thing, this will be the result. So when the psalm records and says the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply, that is prophetic. Family, if you run after another God, the sorrows in your life will multiply. We should expect that. Now, this does not mean and I want to deconstruct any kind of prosperity theology that would creep in here. 
some people would say, well, if you're saying sorrow multiplies for those who run after another God, then I run, if I run after the one true God, my sorrow should diminish, right? Well, they just change. That's why Jesus told his disciples, blessed are you when others revile you and speak all kinds of evil against you for my sake. For so they did to the prophets who were before you. So, it doesn't mean our sorrows disappear, but we see our sorrows through a different lens. If my hope is in Christ alone, then when I face sorrows in this life, I know my hope wasn't there to begin with. Because you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. You know, it's... So recently, uh, my family and I went on a camping trip, Memorial Day weekend. We left after church on Sunday, and we decided to go down. It's just about an hour drive, and we got about 10 minutes from the campsite, and we blew a tire on our RV. <laughs> it turned out, I mean, amazingly, this whole, uh, this whole circumstance, amazingly, I was incredibly calm. It really was a God thing, because normally I'd be like, oh, are you kidding me? We're just trying to get away for a night, go have some fun. But one of the, one of the factors in me being calm is because uh, the tires on our RV are really old. And in some ways I'm going, I kind of expected it to fail at some point. It just failed before I got them replaced. And the reason that comes to mind is because if I have recognized that the things of this world will let me down, then when it happens, I go, huh. I knew that would happen. I, I doesn't make it any less inconvenient. It doesn't make it any less frustrating in the moment, but it does change the narrative in our minds, doesn't it? Because we have to wrestle with the question, what do I actually have control of? And when we get down to it, I have control of very little. I don't even have control of when, if my eyes open in the morning. I like to think I do, but I really don't. Every breath is a gift from the Lord. And so what changes in the dynamic of who we are as a people if we recognize that God is enough? What, what changes in the fabric of that? The ones who run after another God shall, their sorrows shall multiply. Then there's this interesting statement here where it, it, it says no blood offering poured out, um, that their drink offerings of blood will not, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And this is where we intersect this with the person of Jesus and it's really important. So I, I want to preface something in this. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. As a church, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, we believe that all of scripture is God breathed. And what that means is that even though there's around 40 different writers of scripture, there's one author. And it's, it's the reason that we can have thousands of years between one of these writings and they tell the same story. There's no other narrative, there's no other book in the history of the world that does that. Even when you look at other religions, you see one person and maybe one editor that has modified or given that resource to a specific group. And yet we've got 40 different 
writers, and yet one narrative that points to one God, the creator of the universe, who sent one Savior through whom there's eternal hope. And so in the scope of this, we also recognize that these writers can write things led by the Holy Spirit, as Peter declares, and not even have a full concept of what they're speaking about. And Psalm 16 is one of these places. And it's incredible. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Put your finger in Psalm 16 and go to Acts chapter 2. And if you've never seen this before, it's, it's astounding. And while you're turning there, I want to preface what's happening in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus has just ascended to heaven. So he's, he's been raised from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and to this host of other people. And he has just... We would, we would look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and say, he said, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So he's commissioned them out, and then he ascends into heaven. And right after this happens, the disciples are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which Christ had promised would happen. And why he said, it's better if I leave, because then the helper will come to you. And then Peter preaches this sermon at Pentecost. If you ever heard that word, this is where that's happening in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, I'm going to read verses 22 through 36. He's speaking to this grouping of people. And it says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in our midst, as you yourselves know. They were all witnesses of this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God foreknew that this was how things were going to work. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Sound familiar? Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The prophetic nature of what David is declaring in this speaks about Christ. It speaks about the Messiah that in David's time is yet to come. Acts 13 emphasizes this even further, where it says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Now, the word corruption here, you might go, what does that really mean? It means decomposition. Sheol and Hades is considered the place where the dead are buried, where they go. And so when we read this, specifically in verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, if you say that this is all about David, then you really can't say that that's true. Because David did die and was buried, and as this passage declares... um, He fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Here's the hope portion. Speaking about Jesus. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Praise God! One may ask, you speak of the Messiah, you speak of Christ. How do we know that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah? Well, Jesus said he was in John chapter four. You write this reference down in John four, twenty five through twenty six. It's the first time we see Jesus declare openly and publicly that he is the Messiah. And he does it to a Samaritan woman sitting by a well. And he said, the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What is promised through him? That's the final question we have to ask. What is the promised truth in Christ? The psalmist declares these realities. We're wrestling with this. Where is our hope in life and death? It's in Christ alone. This speaks about the hope that is in Christ alone. He's the only one in verse 4 that can say, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. I'm not going to take their names on my lips. That's a scary statement. Jesus is the one that has all authority to identify who's Redeemed in Christ. Who are the people who say, I follow him. I trust in him. My hope is in him. I have no good apart from him. He's the only way to the Father. Look at verse 11 as this promised truth. If there's one piece of this passage in Psalm 16 that I want you to memorize, it's this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's eternal, family. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, through Jesus. There is no other place full of, more full of joy than the presence of the Father. It's why in John 17, Jesus actually longed for that. 
Jesus said, Father, return to me the glory I once had with you before the world began. Jesus, if he longed for anything, it was that he longed to be with his father again. Why? Because, Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good. I have no good apart from you. This even brings us to later, as the psalmist declares in Psalm 8410, better is one day, right? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. You know, we, we've sang that song before, but it, again, family, if we're really honest, we don't live that way. In fact, our American ideology would say, your best days are yet to come. Your best days are coming. And some of you that are living in retirement are going, my best days are already here. And yet, it doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter if you are upside down in everything or you have everything you could ever want. The best days are not yet here. Because you could have a thousand of the best days of your life in this world and it would not compare to one day in the presence of the Lord. And the psalmist declares this in your presence, in your presence, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Family, we want this, don't we? We long for this. We look for this. We look for it in every possible place, in our jobs, in our families, in our relationships, in our money, in our, our things, in our kids. We, we look for it everywhere. You will not find it anywhere but in the name of Christ. There is hope in none other. And so the simple application question is this. Do we? (laughs) Two words. Do we? The the question would be, do we what? So I'm going to ask it again, and you're going to respond. You're going to say, do we what? Okay? All right, because if I just say this to my kids, that's what they'll do. Dad, do we we what? Right? All right, so here we're going to go. Do we? We'll try one more time. Do we? Do we what? Do we say to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you? Do we run after or seek to acquire other gods other than the one true God? Do we set the Lord always before us? Do we know the path of life? Hope in life and death is found in Christ alone. There is no other. And so, I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and we're going to sing this truth at the end here. But as we do so, here's what I want you to wrestle with. Because I know how much each one of us is challenged with this idea. And I know how easy it is for me to speak these truths, and yet for me to leave this building and return to all of the hopes uh, that I'm prone to put my hope in. I know that it's a lot easier for us to come here and resound with praise and say, our hope is in Jesus, our hope is in Jesus. And yet I know that is when the rubber meets the road and you face hardship and trial and pain and anguish, that you sit and you go, why, Lord? Why does it seem like every good thing 
causes such pain. And at the end of the day, God longs for you to understand that there is hope in no one else. There is lasting, eternal hope in none other. And he has given us access to that hope in the name of Jesus. But if we choose to continue to hope in the things of this world, that's not God's fault. So, not just do we treasure him more than anything else, but the end question of this is, will we? As we leave here today, will we make a commitment to say, my hope is in no other name but the name of Jesus? Will we run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus? Will we commit to saying, He is my portion, and in Him I need nothing else? From if there is joy and satisfaction and hope and peace in the name of Jesus. Will we? Father, as we close and we proclaim these truths in song, may we do so with a resounding amen that declares that we will be a people possessed by you, untethered from the world, fixing our eyes on Christ and saying, my hope is in no other name but the name of Jesus. Christ, my hope in life and death. For your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.